Hey guys, this is my so-called true crime podcast and I'm Brandy. This is the podcast that I've created to share with you guys about any cases that I find and learn. And for those of you who are new, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. To those of you who tune in every week, welcome back and thank you so much for your continued support. Okay, so let's keep this train going, right? Let's keep celebrating women this month. I know last episode I spoke to you guys about mothers doing the unthinkable, and yes, it was absolutely sad. However, that really wasn't the point of my episode. I wanted to bring light to the fact that there are a lot of things that are misunderstood about women because there simply isn't enough information out there. But tonight, I'm doing a complete 180. I wanna talk about women who fought back their attackers and won. It's something I wish we heard more of. Obviously, I don't want women to ever deal with any kind of pain or suffering, but hearing how they fight back and how they are able to keep living because of it is really inspiring. Now, I do want to preface this episode, though. Even though these women fought back and they won, a couple of them had to be at the absolute mercy of the court. So we'll get into that. want to start off tonight with Lucy Kukarik. She lives in Sheffield, UK. She's a 20-year-old woman who fought off a much larger attacker. In December of 2016, Lucy waived her anonymity to talk about the moment Jonathan Holmes followed her before grabbing her and throwing her over a hedge in 2015. Lucy a Sheffield University student was walking home from work in the early hours of November 1st, 2015 from a late night shift in the city center where she sensed she was being followed and so she crossed the street multiple times um, to avoid the man that she suspected was 
was pursuing her. She held her phone and her keys in her hand. Those keys were soon to become one of her most important survival tools. CCTV footage later showed that she had been stalked for about a mile by her would-be rapist, Jonathan Holmes. Holmes was heavily intoxicated, but he was determined. He had been hiding in shadowy corners, waiting and watching lone women as they passed by. Once he had his sights on Lucy, though, he started trailing her from a distance before launching his assault. The 35-year-old burly man threw Lucy into a roadside bush and wrestled her onto her back before climbing on top of her, telling her, you're going to enjoy this. What he didn't expect was a terrified but angry Lucy to fight back. As Holmes rushed at her, she punched him in the stomach. Undeterred, he used his weight to try and smother Lucy into submission. But when he groped her and forced his tongue into Lucy's mouth, she bit down hard. Sensing her attacker was backing down, Lucy further defended herself by using her keys to give Holmes the cuts and bruises that were still visible in his mugshot. As he had given up, he ran away and Lucy had yelled after him, you won't do that to a woman again. A month later, with Holmes caught and charged with sexual assault, Lucy decided that she wanted to read her victim impact statement out in court, even if it meant facing her attacker. She said, quote, I knew that even if I got choked up or started crying in court, it would make the person that had done this to me realize that I am actually a person and a person with feelings. Lucy told the court that if Holmes had succeeded in raping her, her life would have been over. He might as well have killed her right then and there. Holmes admitted the attack at Sheffield Crown Court and he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. I'll be posting the mug shot of this shit bag because it is hilarious. And as a woman, I don't know if I could be okay with him only getting four and a half years in prison. Although I do have to keep in mind that this happened in the UK. Justice is handed out differently out there. But I do take comfort in knowing that she completely kicked his ass. So the next story I have for you guys happened in Ireland. I want to preface this tale with a trigger warning. Sarah Grace is a survivor of a violent sexual attack, and it gets a little graphic, so if you need to skip this part of the episode, I completely understand. However, there is a happy ending. Well, as happy as can be given the circumstances. Sarah Grace is a survivor of a violent sexual attack by a stranger who broke into her apartment in Dublin while she slept. In the days preceding the attack, Sarah spent a long weekend in Galway. She was celebrating with her family. 
She had just become a lawyer, and on Tuesday, July 16th, she boarded an early morning train back to Dublin and had a busy day at work. The 17th was a crucial day for her. She had meetings with two large clients, and she stayed at work late preparing for those meetings. When she returned to her apartment around 11 p.m., her bedroom felt stuffy. It was the middle of July, but also she had been away for five days. So she opened her bedroom windows for ventilation, leaving the security latch on. Then she went and showered, made a late dinner, and went to bed, rechecking the safety latch on her windows before finally retiring to bed. The next thing she remembers is waking up in the middle of the night. In an interview, Sarah said, quote, there was something strange because I couldn't see anything. Normally there's a street light outside my apartment and the light kind of streams through the sides of the curtains, the blackout curtains. I couldn't see any light. I tried to sit up, but there was a weight on my chest." Unquote. She felt something wet on her neck and she repeatedly tried to sit up. Suddenly, she had a heart-stopping moment when she realized there was a man on top of her. Alright, so I'm going to butcher this name. I have no idea how to say it. I've looked it up on Google, see how to pronounce it. If anybody wants to let me know, I would definitely appreciate it, but I'm going to try my best. So, during the attack, El Ganawi then began to strangle her, and she genuinely thought she was going to die. She started, so she started thrashing, kicking as hard as she could to get him off of her. He was surprised by this. He hadn't expected her to resist as much because Sarah admitted that she was able to throw him off pretty quickly. Sarah jumped off her bed and ran to her bedroom door. Elganawi chased her and grabbed her from behind and threw her to the floor, face down. Before she was able to get back up, he was on top of her, straddling her and strangling her. By this time, Sarah was screaming at the top of her lungs, trying to wake up the neighbors upstairs, her roommates who were two doors down, and anyone passing through the street. She was just screaming for dear life. So he strangled her more, to the point where she couldn't breathe. Then the adrenaline kicked in. She managed to pass her hands through his arms and tried to strangle him back, grabbing his throat. Then she grabbed at his groin. She squeezed and twisted and pulled down. This initially deterred him, but again, he tried to pin her to the ground and as she screamed, he placed his hand over her mouth, blocking her nose as well. So she bit down on his hand. It was that, you know, piece of skin between the thumb and the index finger. And she didn't stop until her teeth came into direct contact. This is when he released her and she lunged for the door. As she did, he, in an ultimate act of fuck you, he rammed his fingers so violently inside of her, causing a cut of several inches in her vagina.
even after this violent attack, she still managed to escape him and she woke up her roommate and the three young women escaped and they called the police who arrived and brought them to Pierce Street Station. And from there, the sexual assault treatment unit at the Rotunda Hospital. Ibrahim Elgenoy was arrested a number of days later. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, she thought on her experience of studying criminal law and thought about how to proceed. She kept thinking about what she learned. Uh, do not shower. Do not brush your teeth. Do not wash your hands. Don't move. And if you can, don't drink anything. Definitely don't eat. Sarah says that this process of her healing began at the treatment unit. The men and the women who worked there from the moment she walked in the door, they were warm, welcoming, and human, and they didn't show her any pity. In the aftermath of the attack, Sarah suffered serious post-traumatic stress disorder, including panic attacks. She was unable to be touched by anyone, including her own parents, but unable to be alone, and she was unable to sleep because the attack had started while she was sleeping. After it occurred, she found herself obsessively getting out of bed to check the windows and doors up to 20 or 30 times a night, and she lived in constant fear that she would be attacked and violated in her sleep again. She suffered violent nightmares, flashbacks, and insomnia. The doctors offered Sarah sleeping tablets, but she was too scared to take them. She was terrified of allowing herself to become unconscious at night or be unable to defend herself if she were to be attacked again. In her victim impact statement, she said that her life had been changed permanently. Ibrahim, Ibrahim Elganoi, Elganawi, pleaded not guilty to aggravated sexual assault and burglary at her home in Dublin. And, but he was convicted by a jury of both counts following a trial in December of 2020. He also pleaded guilty to the burglary of another man's nearby apartment earlier that same night and attempted burglary of another home on July 12, 2019. Now he is a Moroccan national. He came to Ireland in 2017 and caught the attention of police in August of that year. He had no immigration status to be in Ireland and thus a deportation application was submitted in January of 2018. He was released from custody on the basis of that application, but he failed to engage with the process and the application was closed out. He was homeless at the time of these offenses. He has 33 previous convictions convictions spanning across three jurisdictions. He has 22 Irish convictions for, for offenses such as burglary, possession of a knife, and failing to appear in court. And he had been in custody since July 18, 2019. 
The judge determined a high degree of culpability and set a headline sentence of 12 years for the sexual assault and nine years for the burglary. He noted in mitigation that El Ganawi had accepted the evidence to a significant degree and acknowledged he was present but did not plead guilty or express remorse. He took into account the guilty pleas to the other burglaries and that El Ganawi will serve his sentence in this country where he has no friends and will have social and cultural difficulties. Mr. Justice McDermott imposed a sentence of 10 years for the aggravated sexual assault, seven and a half years for the burglary of the woman's home, three years for the earlier burglary, and 18 months for the attempted burglary with all sentences to run concurrently. So really, all in all, he's only going to be serving 10 years for such a brutal attack. But again, this is Ireland, so I'm not going to say anything one way or the other. A year after, Sarah waived her anonymity and told the world of her attack and her experience as a victim in the Irish court system. This whole ordeal inspired her to write a book recounting her experience of surviving a vicious sexual assault, physical assault, and home break-in, but not in a way that just relives it, but instead it is an instructive, hugely practical, insightful, and helpful guide to survival. It's called Ash and Salt from Survival to Empowerment After Sexual Assault by Sarah Grace. There's also a really good podcast called uh, Good Glow with Sarah Grace. It was a very inspiring episode about her attack, her survival, and the way she fought, not just for her life, but also standing up for herself in the courtroom. Okay, so I'm gonna take a break to hear from my sponsor. So let's take a moment to hear from my sponsor. This week, I'm so happy to tell you guys about Coco and Eden, handcrafted jewelry that makes you look good and feel good as a woman. And as a woman who isn't the typical girly girl, who doesn't really get into jewelry, I have to say I love Coco in Eden. This jewelry is simple and classy and it makes me feel every bit as beautiful as the jewelry. Plus, something that is very important to me, this is a company that is 100% carbon neutral. They've partnered with companies like Greenfeet and Carbon Footprint Limited, and they invested in renewable power projects to help provide sustainable energy to the impoverished and the heavily polluted areas. All of their jewelry is hypoallergenic and is made to last forever because 18 karat gold does not oxidize or discolor. So I can wear it every day and anywhere without worry and taking care of the jewelry is so easy. It requires very little upkeep. This jewelry is also super affordable and with my code CRIMEPOD20, you can get an extra 20% off any order. So what are you waiting for? I left the links in the show notes, so go check it out.
snow was falling in Stevenson, Alabama, when Brittany Smith and her brother, Chris McCallie, stopped at a McDonald's. It was January 2018, and Brittany felt happier than she had in a long time. After years of working low-paying, menial jobs, she was coming from an interview at a flooring company, and she had been hired on the spot at a wage that would more than cover her expenses, including rent for her four-bedroom red brick house. Brittany, who is now 32, has four children. In 2013, after she struggled with substance abuse, the state removed the eldest three, who eventually went to live with her uncle. But a long period of good behavior meant that she'd soon get increased visitations and then, she hoped, full custody. On the drive back to her house, Brittany got a call from Todd Smith, an old acquaintance she who bred pit bulls in Jasper, Tennessee, just over the state line. She had visited his house the day before and taken home a reddish color puppy with gray-blue eyes like her own she named her Athena. Now Todd, who was 38, asked if she would pick him up from a city park. He said that he was stranded and freezing and he had no one else to call. He didn't tell her that his father had kicked him out of the house after a violent altercation that ended with Todd's arrest. But picking up Todd didn't seem like a good idea, according to Brittany. He had expressed romantic interest in her, which she rejected, and Chris advised her not to. Still, the snow was coming down thick and fast, so Brittany told Todd that they'd pick him up and that he could stay on the couch for the night. She didn't want him in the children's bed. After Chris dropped Brittany and Todd off at her house, they gave the puppy a bath and talked about the meth crisis that had engulfed the Tennessee Valley and derailed their lives. Brittany had become hooked after losing her grandmother and a baby to a rare congenital condition within a year. She'd grown alarmingly skinny, had been arrested for drug possession, and spent two weeks in jail. But now, she was clean. Todd, who had buzzed hair, flushed cheeks, and a disarming smile said that he still struggled with drugs. And Brittany urged him to get his priorities together, telling him about the good job she'd just been offered and how her kids might soon come home. According to her, as she spoke, Todd's face hardened and he asked if she thought she was better than him. He called her a bitch and headbutted her. Terrified, she ran into her bedroom and shut the door, but Todd broke right through it. He threw her on the bed and choked her until she passed out. When she woke up, she was naked and had urinated on herself, and he was raping her, and his hands were tight around her throat. We're friends, she tried to say, but her voice sounded squeaky through his grip, like a cartoon character's. We're friends, he replied, mocking her. Don't say a fucking word or I'll kill you. As he raped her, Brittany fought back, sobbing and clawing at him so hard that some of her fingernails ripped off. He twisted her head against the side of the bed until she thought her neck would break. They fell onto the floor and again he choked her until she blacked out. She said she woke up 
and let him finish what he was doing. And his whole face changed. He was normal. Afterward, Todd said that if she told anyone what had happened, he would kill her and everyone she loved, her mother, her brother, and her children. He wanted cigarettes, and Brittany offered to call someone to take them to the store, since she didn't have a car. She called her mother, Ramona McCallie, who lived nearby. Todd held the phone while Brittany talked, and she tried to subtly convey that something was wrong. Ramona thought her daughter sounded strange, as if she had been crying, but Ramona was exhausted from a new job cleaning houses, and she sent Chris over. At a local gas station, Brittany went in for cigarettes while Chris and Todd sat in the car. In the fluorescent light, the cashier, Paige Painter, who regularly served Brittany, noticed her tangled hair, her ripped nails, and scratched face. What happened to you, Painter asked. In a low voice, Brittany asked for a piece of paper, wrote down, quote, Todd Smith, and said that he had beaten her and raped her. She added that if she was dead in the morning, he was the person who had done it but she made Painter promise not to call the police. If the police were involved, I would be dead right now, she said. When Chris again dropped off Brittany and Todd, Brittany told him to go see Paige, and so he did. At the gas station, after Paige told him what Brittany had told her, Chris said he just went blank. Then he drove back to Brittany's house with a registered 22 caliber revolver that he kept in his car. Meanwhile, Brittany had texted her mom, quote, mom, Todd has tried to kill me, literally, she wrote. Don't act like anything is wrong. He will kill me if he knows. Chris said that he found Todd in the kitchen. He said, you need to get your shit and leave, Chris told him, and he accidentally fired a shot into the cabinet. When Todd refused to go, Chris set the gun down on the kitchen island and tried to wrestle him out of the house. Chris was large but soft. Todd was barrel-chested, and he had taken a combination of Xanax, amphetamines, alcohol, and meth. According to Chris, Todd easily got him into a headlock and began choking him. Brittany, who had been in the living room until hearing the shot, said she picked up the gun from the counter. Sobbing and screaming, she told Todd to let her brother go. When he kept choking Chris, saying that he'll kill them both, Brittany fired a shot. When Todd still didn't let go, she fired two more rounds. After he fell, she called 911. Someone just got shot at 211 Sharon Drive, Brittany told the operator. He, he tried to kill me and, as the operator went through a series of questions, Brittany grew frantic, saying, just have an ambulance come, please, I don't want this man to die. The operator told her how to do CPR and Brittany performed mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation on Todd while Chris did chest compressions. Police officers showed up nearly half an hour later, around the time that Todd died. Brittany detailed how he had beaten and raped her and attacked Chris. A rape kit 
showed bruises on her neck, breasts, arms, legs, pelvis, evidence of strangulation, bite marks on her neck and chin, and secretions on her neck and in her vagina. Yet, within 48 hours, she had been charged with murder. Initially, Brittany and Chris told the police that Chris had killed Todd. Both, both of them believed that a woman who had defended herself against violence would never get a fair trial in Jackson County, where Stevenson is situated. Stevenson, once a lively railroad hub, is now riddled with vacant storefronts and empty lots. A quarter of the town's residents live below the poverty line, and well-paying jobs are scarce. The town's biggest annual event celebrates the now-defunct train station and features lawnmower races and vintage cars. Between 2015 and 2017, Jackson County had more than double the state average of aggravated assaults per capita. There were far fewer simple assaults, but the sheriff's office said that officials categorized some domestic violence complaints as harassment, a lesser crime. Nearly every woman in the county had a story of, of domestic violence. Often, drugs played a role. One woman, a single mother and a neighbor of the McCallies, said that her husband of 14 years, while on meth, had, quote, stomped my head in until I passed out. Another woman said that she had been sexually assaulted as a child and that her ex-husband had held her hostage at gunpoint. On both occasions, she said authorities made her feel as if she were to blame, saying, quote, instead of being treated like the victim, it was more like my fault. They said if I did anything to him, I would have been the one going to jail. What am I supposed to do? Let him beat me up and end up dead?" Unquote. Fighting back against rapists and abusers is a valid legal defense, but women with persuasive self-defense claims continue to be charged with murder. Chuck Phillips, the Jackson County Sheriff, insisted that domestic violence and sexual abuse weren't especially common in this county. Quote, I don't know who you talk to, but I don't much believe that. I mean, our statistics are not outrageous. People get high, they get stupid, unquote. Some of the women said that they had not reported the violence because they did not have confidence in law enforcement. Sandra Goodman, a local rape victim advocate who took on Brittany's case, said that when a woman makes a report, the police often don't acknowledge it. In her role as an advocate, Goodman provides transportation and attends court hearings for women who have been sexually assaulted. She is also the vice president of Healing Bridge, a nonprofit in Lafayette, Georgia, which offers free counseling to victims of sexual abuse. Goodman said that the center often takes clients from Jackson County because resources there are few. She described the violence in that county as epidemic, saying a lot of the time they take the woman's statement and that's where it stops. The sheriff's office handling of the recent deaths of two women has not inspired much confidence. 
In 2017, a year after a woman's body was found on the railroad tracks, law enforcement said that her death remained unsolved because of a long delay in receiving the forensic report. However, in October 2018, when another woman was found dead, police initially announced that she had been stabbed. Later, they said that she had been hit by a car. Quote, the women getting killed or almost getting killed is going up because they aren't doing anything about it, said one woman. They don't want to waste their time. Throughout the 2000s, Alabama was among the states where a woman was most likely to be murdered by a man. According to FBI data analyzed by the Violence Policy Center, a gun crime prevention group, in 2011, Alabama stopped submitting its homicide data to the Bureau, but Georgia and Tennessee, its neighboring states, are still in the top 10. Brittany believed that if she had not shot Todd, he would have killed her and Chris. She did what she thought she had to do. In March 2018, a grand jury indicted Brittany for murder. She said that she was given legal advice that the prosecution planned to argue that she and Todd had been in a relationship, a claim that she denies. Her bond was set at $100,000, which her mother, who live in Stevenson's public housing, could not pay. If convicted, Brittany faced a sentence of 20 years to life. That month, an investigator for the sheriff's office testified at a pretrial hearing that he didn't believe Todd had tried to kill Brittany. When asked about her injuries, the rape kit had counted 33. He said, quote, honestly, I mean, I would have thought there would be more. In the past several decades, imprisonment of women in the United States has increased at a rate twice that of men. There are now some 230,000 women incarcerated. No national data exists on how many women imprisoned for violent crimes claim that they were acting in self-defense. But a 2004 study by the Department of Justice, which surveyed 60 female inmates at a maximum security prison in the Southeast, found that nearly half of them said they had acted in self-defense or retaliated in the wake of abuse. The women acted in response to being pushed, slapped, punched, beaten, choked, raped, or threatened with a weapon, the study's author wrote. A review by researchers at the University of South Carolina and at Yale in 2008, which drew on dozens of previous studies, found that when women used violence against male partners, it generally occurred after violence was done to them. The review noted that women were more likely to be motivated by self-defense and by fear, while men's use of violence was more often motivated by control. Courts frequently do not take evidence of abuse into account. Sometimes this is because a woman's lawyer fails to hire an expert witness to testify about the effects of sexual or domestic violence. A prosecutor may successfully argue that a woman's self-defense claim is invalid because she didn't end a relationship with an abuser, or she didn't call the police about the violence, as Brittany didn't or she allowed the abuser into her home, as Brittany did, 
or a judge may not permit the evidence of abuse to be presented. In 2014, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Tracy Grissom was sentenced to 25 years in prison for murder for shooting her ex-husband, Hunter. The judge did not allow jurors to hear that. In 2010, Hunter had been charged with rape and sodomy after allegedly assaulting Grissom. Grissom said that he had knocked her to the ground, choked her with a drumstick, and sexually abused her until she lost consciousness. She said that the attack caused rectal nerve damage and required surgery, and now she has to use a colostomy bag. The day of the shooting, she said she feared for her life, but eyewitnesses said that she had begun shooting without provocation. Quote, I didn't do anything wrong, Grissom said, sobbing after her conviction. All I did was protect myself. One of the jurors later said that if, he had been a- if she had been able to hear the details of the abuse, she would have voted to acquit. Brittany Myers was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 20 years in 2013 after stabbing her husband, Timothy, outside Mobile. She said that Timothy had been abusive since returning from Iraq, where he had served as a member of the Alabama National Guard. According to Myers, Timothy attempted to strangle her to death while she was holding their son. After receiving her sentence, she told a local TV station I guess in the state of Alabama, it's illegal to defend yourself. Myers later filed a petition for post-conviction relief, arguing that her counsel had been ineffective in failing to let her testify, and that the prosecution had neglected to hand over photographs of the injuries she had sustained before the stabbing, including wounds to her chest, throat, ankle, and head. Her petition was denied. News coverage of these cases largely focuses on the archetypes that the prosecution draws of the women, quote, cold-blooded murderer, or evil and heartless are common descriptions. The Alabama media, in reporting on Todd's death, did not mention Brittany's rape. Researchers at nonprofits were frustrated by the lack of statistics on how many women have been incarcerated for defending themselves. In some cases, It was almost as if violence against women didn't exist. An analysis of FBI homicide data performed by John Roman, a senior fellow at NORC at the University of Chicago, illuminates the differences in outcomes for women and men who claim self-defense. Roman examined the number of justifiable homicides, a killing deemed to have been carried out without malicious or criminal intent between 1976 and 2018, and he found that the likelihood of this ruling in cases in which men killed other men was 10% greater than when women killed men. Cases in which men kill women or women kill women are almost never found to be justified. In Alabama, the gender disparity was even greater. Before the state stopped reporting such data to the FBI, women lost their cases 25% more often than men did. Joshua Todd Smith grew up in Jasper, Tennessee, the seat of Marion County. His parents divorced when he was young. According to Jeff Poe, a cousin of Todd's, the two boys loved to explore the surrounding woods and mountains of the Tennessee Valley. 
in high school, Poe said that they just drank, but later Todd started taking opioids, benzodiazepines, and meth, among other drugs. It was common for men in the valley to settle their differences by fighting, but Todd would take it to the next level, Poe said. He almost never lost a fight, and if he did, he went back for more. Poe said that as they got older, he began to worry that Todd didn't like to be sober. When he was on something, his violence got worse. When Todd took Xanax, Poe said the neighborhood was on eggshells. Poe, who in 2018 was arrested for meth possession, compared the impact of meth on Todd to Jack Nicholson's warning to Heath Ledger about playing the character of Joker. Like, don't get too wrapped up in this character, Poe said. He did, and it overtook his life. Poe has a tattoo on his arm of the Joker and another of a pit bull in memory of Todd. He mostly dealt drugs instead of using them, and he blamed himself for Todd's addiction. In the early 2000s, Paige Parker was married to Todd. Two weeks after she married him, he broke her nose, and she couldn't see straight. Parker told an online radio host in early 2019, quote, I was sitting there crying to myself for a second, and I'm like, I'm a strong person, but I was like, why is this happening? After that, according to Parker and to arrest reports from the time, the violence escalated. Todd broke her nose, ribs, jaw, and bit on her face. Quote, I was also beaten and raped and sodomized for years by this man, she said. I know what Brittany went through that night because I went through it for years. While they were married, Todd was charged with domestic violence five times, but he never went to jail for those charges. Even after Parker filed for divorce in 2003, the violence did not end. She told the radio host that Todd had duct taped her to a chair and threatened to throw her in the Tennessee River. In 2004, she got an order of protection. After the divorce, Todd continued to be arrested on charges of domestic violence, including toward a woman with whom he had a child, but they were all dismissed. Local law enforcement said that his accusers often didn't show up in court. That's a common reason that batterers escape consequences. Police officers remember Todd well, since they arrested him about 80 times. A former dispatcher at the Stevenson Police Department said that around 2009, when she failed to respond to his flirtation, he backed her against a desk and tried to tear off her shirt. Ever since he was a juvenile, it's always been something, Billy Mason, the chief of the Jasper Police Department. Mason had responded to complaints about Todd's domestic violence towards women and his father and about mistreatment of his pit bulls. Of 12 assault charges brought against Todd, seven were dismissed or waived. That's the deal with court that a police officer can't stand because nobody stays in jail as long as they need to. He blamed the court system for not doing more to stop domestic abusers. Quote, we're always the one getting a bad rap, and you know, sometimes it's a system in the hole. After Brittany was charged with Todd's murder, she was placed in the Jackson County Jail in Scottsboro, a squat brick and concrete building with ads for bail bond agents in the lobby. Most of the inmates were there for drug offenses. In jail, Brittany said staff did not give her Xanax, which she had been prescribed for anxiety. 
Jails can discontinue an inmate's medication, and sometimes because they do not have the drug on hand or because they want an inmate to detox, particularly an inmate like Brittany, who has a history of substance abuse. But sudden withdrawal from benzodiazepines such as Xanax can lead to panic attacks and hallucinations, and within days, Brittany had a nervous breakdown. She said she hallucinated images of Todd and of pit bulls. Ramona, her mother, said that she received a call from Brittany in which, quote, she was talking crazy and it freaked me out. Brittany said that two jailers taunted her, telling her she could push a button on an invisible elevator that would take her to see her children. Of course... The Jackson County Sheriff's Office declined to comment on this allegation. A therapist who saw Brittany several times in jail wrote that she spoke with clarity and logical thought process. He added that she found it difficult to manage without her medication. In April 2018, Ramona found two people in Jackson County to put up their houses as collateral for bail and Brittany was released. She moved into her mother's home and she started taking her anti-anxiety medication again. But she couldn't relax and neither could Chris. He was having nightmares and screaming in his sleep. His name had been published in the local paper after Todd's death and now he couldn't find work. People in Stevenson were gossiping about the rape and the shooting. Stories circulated that Brittany had been watching porn with Todd before the rape, that Ramona had been at the shooting, that the killing was a drug deal gone wrong. Jeff Poe, who was living with Todd at the time, wrote on Facebook that two nights before the killing, he had seen Brittany naked with Todd. In his post, he said, I got up to piss and it looked like National Geographic in the house. I seen it with my own damn eyes what the whore did. Although, Cindy Bolden Hicks, a friend of Brittany's, said that Brittany was at her house that night playing cards. But Poe reiterated what he said. He said that although he believed that Todd could have beaten Brittany, he didn't think that he could rape her. Quote, how can you rape the willin? Poe asked. Even Todd's ex-wife, Paige Parker, who had participated in a protest in support of Brittany, later said that she didn't want to be associated with the case. She said that she believes Brittany is using her story of sexual violence as her own. And when Parker was asked if she's seen the results of the rape kit detailing Brittany's injuries, she replied, well, yeah, that could be from rough sex. Of course, Chris found this absurd. All these people out here saying, oh, they were dating and it was just rough sex. No, I'm pretty sure we all know what rough sex is. He said, and I wouldn't wish being raped on my worst enemy. Not long after Brittany's release, she and her mother said, there was a man on a motorcycle following her. Once, he even watched her while she was running laps at a local park. And another time, he followed her to the gas station where she had bought cigarettes the night of the shooting. Brittany confronted him. She said that he told her that he was a relative of Todd's. 
and he was just letting her know that he knew and to let her know who he was. That June, Brittany stopped leaving Ramona's apartment except to visit her children, and Chris rarely left either other than to try and find work. Summers in northeastern Alabama are hot and teeming with mosquitoes. At night, children chase one another on bikes, and adults smoke cigarettes on porches and talk until late. Brittany joined them on the porch, but didn't want to go with her mother to Walmart or to the dollar store. To distract herself from the upcoming trial, she made funny videos on TikTok with friends online or with children in the neighborhood. In one video, Brittany performs Where's the Love by the Black Eyed Peas with high drama. But as she sings, her tears are real. The court appointed a local criminal defense and personal injury attorney named James Mick, a former police officer, to defend Brittany because she could not afford to hire a lawyer. There is no statewide public defender system in Alabama, so courts often appoint private attorneys to provide defense for the indigent. These attorneys are paid little for their time and have scant incentive to take a case to trial. Mick typically handled low-level drug cases, burglaries, custody suits, divorces, and evictions. When Mick was assigned to Brittany's case, she said he advised her to plead guilty to manslaughter. This conviction would carry a sentence between 2 and 20 years, so Brittany refused. She told him that it was clear she had shot Todd in self-defense, so she told him to enter a stand-your-ground defense. The statute was introduced in Alabama in 2006, and it makes it legal to use lethal force to defend oneself against threats or perceived threats with no duty to retreat. 33 states now have such laws, and advocates say they empower people to protect themselves in grave situations. As Wayne Lapierre, the head of the National Rifle Association and a proponent of Stand Your Ground laws, he said, quote, the one thing a violent rapist deserves to face is a good woman with a gun, unquote. Victor Revel, an Alabama criminal defense attorney who has handled many Stand Your Ground claims, reviewed Brittany's case. And he said that it was a stand your ground all day. If Brittany won a hearing, the charges against her would be dismissed. So Mick initially filed for a stand your ground hearing, but in October 2018, he instead pursued a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, a rare defense that is difficult to win. He requested an evaluation from a state psychologist, which would assess Brittany's competency to stand trial and her mental state at the time of the shooting. Brittany said that Mick made this decision without consulting her or informing her. Of course, Mick denies this. According to her, they had not met in months, despite her frequent efforts to reach him. Brittany said that their only contact in the weeks before the filing had been an argument over his representation. Sandra Goodman, the rape victim advocate, said that Brittany saw a psychiatrist from Healing Bridge several times and that there was nothing that indicated mental illness. Brittany has no mental health issues other than PTSD, and the PTSD is from the rape and the judicial system. After meeting with Brittany, the state psychologist wrote a report depicting her as upset and anxious. 
He began by noting that Brittany had eaten some 10 mini Snickers bars from the reception's desk, which he described as unusual. Although Brittany admitted that she hadn't eaten much that day, which was often the case because of the lack of money. He wrote that she had cried so much that he had to get tissues for her. And Brittany said that when she described how Todd had mimicked her voice during the rape, the psychologist laughed. Incensed, she started cursing. So the psychologist noted in the report that she seemed, quote, hostile and ill at ease. I want it to be noted that when the psychologist was reached by phone and email, he said at first he didn't even remember Brittany. Then he said he doesn't believe Brittany's recollection is accurate. The psychologist suggested that Brittany suffered from paranoid thoughts. He reported that she believed Todd Smith's family was after her. He wrote that Brittany had trouble differentiating fantasy from reality, yet Jeff Poe admitted that after Todd's death, he considered having Brittany killed. Psychologists concluded that Brittany was showing symptoms of a psychotic disorder, which he wrote could be exacerbated or caused by substance abuse. He said that she told him he relapsed on meth earlier that fall. Brittany maintains that she was not using drugs at the time of the interview, and in order to regain competency to stand trial, the psychologist wrote she would need outpatient or inpatient treatment. In a pretrial hearing that followed, Jason Pierce, the district attorney of Jackson County, said, quote, the most appropriate and perhaps the only placement for Ms. Smith would be at the Bryce Hospital, unquote. This is the state's oldest inpatient facility in Tuscaloosa, which houses the seriously mentally ill. Pierce went on to suggest that the shooting may have resulted from, quote, one of the delusions Brittany suffered, and that although she had passed a drug test the day before, she could have faked it. The judge sent her to Bryce. So the judge sent her to Bryce. Sandra Goodman was appalled. There was nothing that should have caused her to go to Bryce. No reason at all. Mary Ann Franks, a professor at the University of Miami School of Law, who wrote a study of gender disparity in self-defense law called Real Men Advance, Real Women Retreat, argues that women have long been pathologized for acting in self-defense. Battered Women Syndrome, a theory developed by a psychologist in the 1970s, has often been deployed as a defense in which a woman has killed her abuser. Frank writes that although the argument has sometimes been successful, it is based on the idea of female irrationality. Unlike standard ground laws, which offers justification for a defendant's action, Battered Women Syndrome proposes that a woman has, quote, acted wrongly but is so defective in some significant sense that she cannot be held accountable. Even when battered women's syndrome is not mentioned in court, women who fight back are treated pathologically, treated as if there's something wrong with their brains. When a reporter went to go see Brittany at Bryce, once known as the Alabama State Hospital for the Insane, Outside the hospital, a three-story brick building with imposing white columns stands a statue of Hebe, the Greek goddess of youth, carrying ambrosia and nectar. Originally opened in 1861, Bryce was initially considered a progressive mental institution, but as the population increased, the quality of care sharply declined. 
1971, conditions had deteriorated so significantly that patients filed a class action lawsuit against the state over their mistreatment. The resulting settlement established the federal minimum standard of care for the mentally ill. Brittany was in an all-female ward where one of her roommates told her that she had been institutionalized after skinning her sister's arm and shoulder and eating them. Another patient regularly laid on the floor and played dead, which this understandably distressed Brittany because it reminded her of Todd. She had again been taken off her anti-anxiety medication. In the cafeteria, a staff member watched as Brittany talked about the abuse of patients by staff. She said that after she refused to pick up another roommate's feces, a male nurse had pushed her against the wall and twisted her arm behind her back. And another patient even confirmed this incident. She said that the same nurse later taunted her and asked her to flash him. A call to Bryce's patients advocate about these allegations was not returned. However, later, it was learned that this individual had been arrested for possession of child pornography and he had pleaded not guilty. Brittany kept a journal at Bryce and had the pages mailed to her mother. May 16, injured elbow, sexually assaulted in my sleep. She had woken up to her roommate touching her. June 5th, Donna hit 17-year-old Jalaria. The state psychologist had estimated that Brittany would regain competency within 90 days, but after six months, she was still at Bryce, despite attention brought to her case by a piece on the web. Staff members said that she didn't belong there. Brittany said that the longer she stayed there, the more she feared she was going to crack, and then she'd be held longer. When Ramona called Bryce to find out why Brittany was still there, she was told there was a backlog of patients to evaluate for release. Then, September, Brittany was released from Bryce to jail and then home. Ramona videotaped her reunion with her children at a local park. Ramona told them that a surprise was waiting and then Brittany jumped out from behind a tree. Her children rushed to hug her and her two boys began to cry. As Brittany awaited trial, she tried to put her life back together. She nervously picked at herself, developing small scabs on her arms and hands. She and Ramona barely ate. Most of their money had gone toward getting Brittany out of jail after Bryce. Chris had found a job cleaning restaurants on overnight shifts, but the family still hadn't had enough to cover Brittany's bond. So Ramona had given a bondswoman the titles to her cars and her mother's wedding rings as collateral. In October, the district attorney offered Brittany a plea deal, a sentence of 25 years if she pleaded guilty, less than she might expect if she were convicted of murder. Brittany refused to consider it. She was determined to claim self-defense in part for her children. She didn't want her children to know that their mom was a murderer, that their mom had defended herself and you should always defend yourself. James Mick had filed a motion requesting legal assistance and Brittany now had another court appointed attorney, Ron Smith. In December, once Smith had been briefed, Brittany tried to fire Mick, but later decided that it was too close to trial. Her stand-your-ground hearing was scheduled for January 2020. 
Brittany wasn't optimistic that she'd win. It seemed to her that it was a law that only applied to white men. When she was in Bryce, she noted the number of TV news stories about people who successfully argued stand your ground and none of them were women. In his analysis for The New Yorker, John Roman, the researcher from the University of Chicago, found that Overall, according to the FBI data, stand your ground laws have actually helped both women and men win justifiable homicide defenses. But in some states, the laws have done little or nothing for women. A statistical analysis of stand your ground cases in Florida conducted by the political scientist Justin Murphy looked at 237 incidents between 2005 and 2013. The study, which was published in Social Science Quarterly in 2017, found evidence of both racial and gender bias. The gender bias applied to domestic cases, those which occurred on a defendant's property. The probability of conviction for a male defendant in such a case was about 40%. For a woman, it was about 80%. The analysis suggests that in domestic cases, stand your ground works better for men than women. In Alabama, Roman found no women received justifiable homicide rulings between 2006 when the state's stand your ground law was implemented and 2010, after which the state stopped reporting its data. Since then, a handful of women in Alabama have won stand your ground immunity, but some women with persuasive self-defense claims continue to lose. In 2017, Devin Gray fatally shot her boyfriend, Barry Wash, in Calera, south of Birmingham, during an alleged domestic dispute. Her lawyer wrote in a court filing that Walsh had been abusive throughout the relationship and that, on the day of the killing, had caused her substantial physical injuries, including hitting her, pistol whipping her, and breaking bones in her face. When the police arrived, she was bleeding from the head. Walsh, with whom she had a child, had fired multiple shots in the home, her lawyer said. Yet Gray's stand-your-ground claim was rejected because the judge questioned whether the threat to her life had been immediate. Before Brittany's last pretrial hearing of 2019, on a foggy, overcast day in Stevenson, she and her mother sat in their apartment and talked about what would happen next. If Brittany loses her stand-your-ground hearing, she'll go to trial. If convicted, she will likely be sent to the Julia Tutwiler Women's Prison, where in 2014, a Department of Justice investigation found rampant sexual abuse and harassment by male staff, although Alabama says it has made some improvements. Originally, I was going to strictly talk about Brittany, but this article piqued my interest, so I just had to share it with you. And the whole time, I was on Brittany's side. I mean, I really wanted things to work out for her, and it seemed like it kind of had. I mean, she did lose her stand-your-ground case. In the end, Judge Holt denied Brittany's request for immunity from prosecution under Alabama's self-defense law, saying that she had not proven that the killing was legally justified. She ruled that Brittany was standing between Todd and the door when she fired, giving him no way out. She said that the defendant was not entitled to this defense because it was Chris who brought the gun and initiated the confrontation. Judge Holt wrote in February, quote, The court finds that the defendant has given inconsistent accounts of the events surrounding Todd's death, beginning with the 911 call, and has attempted to alter or destroy evidence. 
The court further finds that the defendant's testimony about material facts was significantly at odds with the physical evidence exhibits and other witness testimony. Of course, this decision set off a series of appeals. Brittany and her lawyers unsuccessfully urged the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals and the state Supreme Court to overturn Holt's stand-your-ground ruling. But the defense also lost appeals to have Holt removed from the case, alleging that she was biased against Brittany. However, the judge denied those allegations. After Brittany lost her stand-your-ground hearing and the appeals to reverse the judge's decision, she accepted a plea deal. The judge sentenced her 20 years with a split sentence. She would serve 18 months in jail, 18 months of house arrest, and probation. According to the Jackson County Sentinel, Smith is not allowed to leave her home unless given permission by the court or community correction. She will be allowed to do court referral, mental health, and anger management. Five years of supervised probation will follow the house arrest period. However, in just a year's time, she was arrested and sent back to jail for probation violation multiple times. And my understanding is that a couple of those violations might not have been her fault, and like I mentioned before, I was really rooting for Brittany. My heart just went out for her. However, I also feel as though sometimes you just gotta eat the shit sandwich and keep your head down, right? So Halloween 2021, Brittany notified her probation officer on October 27th that she wished to hand out candy at her children's trunk or treat e event in Stevenson. The officer denied this request, but did say that she could see her children before the event. However, on Saturday, Brittany sent the officer a text message saying that she sat in a car during the event and took videos of herself to show that she did not leave the vehicle. So the Monday after, a warrant was issued for her and she was booked into Jackson County Jail the next day. And as far as I know, she has returned home to serve out the remainder of her sentence I haven't been able to find much after November of 2021, and I really hope that life is working out a little bit better for her. Um, as I was reading this article, especially while I was recording it, I just noticed that the attack, the rape, none of it's her fault. He was an absolute monster. I mean, drugs will do that to you, right? But there are things that she did that I'm just kind of like, why, what are you doing? You know, I mean, like she didn't have a car, so she had to have her brother go pick Todd up. And I'm like, you don't have a car. There's no reason for you to pick him up. Yeah, I guess you got a puppy from him, but why would you, why would you put yourself in that situation where you're going to be like, in a house with no one else with a man who made you know advances towards you i'm not blaming her i'm i'm not i'm just saying that some things you're just kind of like come on you know you know what i mean so um i really hope things work out for her it it seems like she really just got the shit end of the stick on that but you know Sometimes, like I said, you gotta eat that shit sandwich. Just keep your frickin' head down, man. 
Whew. Well, y'all, we did it. We made it through another episode. So I have to admit, when I started this episode, this is not how I imagined it would turn out. I have to say, I love finding out about the injustices us women face. I guess love isn't exactly the right word to use, I suppose. While I have loved true crime for most of my life, I feel like I feel like maybe I've lived in a bubble. While abusers, kidnappers, and serial killers are all very terrifying, something I have found equally frightening is the court system. And tonight was very eye-opening to me. I really had no idea how difficult it could be for women. I would love to hear from you guys what you think about this episode. Uh, you know, give me a like, leave a review. You can come find me on Facebook um, at my so-called true crime podcast. Uh, my Twitter handle is at my so-called crime pod. Um, as always, I still have no idea, but I'm trying. I'm, I'm just sending out random tweets about my days, you know. So come hang out on the Twitterverse with me. My Instagram is my true crime pod. Um, maybe send me an email at my so-called true crime pod at gmail.com. Um, also, if you would like to show your support with donations, then buy me a coffee. I left the links in the show notes. Um, but whatever you do, guys, just be safe out there, and I hope to catch you next time. Good night. Hey guys, so I want to talk to you guys about my podcasting journey so far. I started out, I started this out as a hobby and I still treat it as such. However, lately I've been wanting to take this a little more seriously and I don't know, maybe do this for a living. I've created and submitted this podcast to several podcasting sites. I mean, it's so easy to do and yet none of them seem to fit right for me didn't quite offer what I was looking for. I thought I found it with Podbean. It's the website I had been with the longest, and yet something was still missing. I had no idea what it was, and, you know, obviously I barely know what I'm doing, but now I've come across Anchor, and I have to say I really wish I came across this first. 
But hey, you know, you live and you learn, right? So now I'm on Anchor, and I'm committed. It renewed my interest in podcasting with the analytics portion of this website. And in just a couple of days, I've been able to see how many times my episodes have been listened to, how many episodes. how many listeners I've acquired. It's really been fun seeing people all over the country tuning into my podcast. I mean, every day a new city pops up on the list. So thank you guys for making it fun for me again.